This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thanks for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. Rob Snowett here, the Fly Fishing Consultant. This is Series 1, Episode 54. Do we give too much credit to fish? Before that, let's give a shout out and another sponsorship opportunity to ProGuide Direct. You can go to ProGuideDirect.com. You can follow them on Twitter and also follow them on Facebook and sign up for their newsletters. But ProGuide Direct is it allows guides like myself to recommend gear that I endorse from a huge list of brands that you can buy directly from the companies. So I don't have a store. I'm an independent guide. So if you want to go fly fishing with me and you want to decide to buy a rod, I would say, hey, go to ProGuideDirect.com and let's get the uh, 9-foot 5-weight Orvis Clearwater. Let's throw a 6-weight Bass Line on there and a Mid-Arbor 3 Orvis Reel. I get credit for that. The percentage comes back to me. I get commission. I need commission right now, guys. As always, this podcast is free, but I'm going to talk about a little story before the podcast and tell you why I need some additional income right now, let alone that it's uh, the first week of October and the federal government is shut down. So about 20 to 30 miles of some of my fishing spots are unavailable to me. I cannot guide anywhere along the Potomac River right now because the national parks are closed. So I'm losing income through that, and it is big striper season right now. Big meaning like 18 to 20 inches, but on a five weight, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. So I'm with my daughter at Gymboree. It is Friday the 13th of September. Eh, Friday the 13th. I get a phone call. This is Officer so-and-so from Fairfax County Police Department. You need to move your boat. Like, dude, what are you talking about moving my boat? It's parked on the shoulder. Sir, you need to move your boat. We're going to tow it. What, what are you talking about? It's parked on the top of the shoulder on Old Columbia Pike. Sir, your boat is parked on a residential sidewalk. You need to move it. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? Sir, your boat's been involved in a car accident. Well, you know, you could have started off with your boat's been involved in a car accident. 
So I pick up my daughter, we leave Jimboree, we go and switch cars out to the one with the trailer hitch, and we drive over to the shoulder of the highway, or not highway, am I talking about? It's a, it's a one-lane road in each direction. It's Old Columbia Pike, it connects Little River Turnpike to Lincolnia Road and Columbia Pike near Lake Barcroft, which is the six-mile shoreline private lake I live near that I'm not allowed to fish. So I go there, and my boat is on the trailer, way uphill from where I parked it and on the sidewalk that parallels old Columbia Pike. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? So I pull up to it and park and get out and it is completely destroyed. It's dented in the back. There's huge dents on the sides. The benches are completely ripped out. My net is bent in half and I'm trying to think of other things and there's just crap everywhere. So I'm a little confused. Now I put the boat on the trailer and I move it to another spot and start taking pictures of it, where it was, where I found it, etc. And I was expecting police cars to be there. I have no idea what's going on. I drive over to the police station. It's just up the road, Mason District. And I was like, hey, uh, somebody hit my car, my boat with their car. I don't know what's going on. Please help me figure this out. So they give me a card, and they're like, your car was involved in a hit and run. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of figured that out. What am I, what do we do? I need this person's insurance, etc. It's a hit and run. Great. So I spend the day calling my insurance company, figuring it out. Basically I have to go to the driver's insurance company. And at this point I have no idea who hit my car. I said car again. I meant boat. I've been a little stressed out the last couple of weeks. So I'm pretty, pretty screwed. Um, I don't have a boat. That boat is like another child to me. I love that thing. I feel so comfortable when I'm in my drift boat. I feel at home. It is, it's my, my other child. And I've got Dr. Jones. I've got the pixie. This boat is my other, other child. So I'm like heartbroken. And please just give me this number. They're like, call this officer, find out what happened. So I call, I get a voicemail. Saturday goes by. I don't hear a thing. I go back to the boat Friday evening or Saturday morning just to look it over and realize it's completely dented. It's bent. Uh, I can't, it's not going to drain. It's filling up with water because we actually got a rainstorm the night before. It it's un it's unusable. The benches were ripped out. It turns out the boat moved eighty one feet uphill and to the right when it was hit. And they also tell me four cars were involved. Obviously, there's a blue minivan that is shaped like a V. It looks like a bull ran into the side of it, broke the axle, broke the wheels, flattened it. There's also a Subaru Outback that's completely destroyed. There are car pieces and parts everywhere. So Saturday goes on. I go down and and go fishing with one of my buddies in the mountains. And then the next day, I take a climb out trout fishing, which is something I normally never do, especially a two-hour drive from home. But I just needed to get out of town. I was very stressed. And then I go to Mossy Creek Fly Shop to go buy some stuff. And I get a phone call. Hey, this is Officer so-and-so. We found the woman who hit your car. She was drunk. She spent two nights in jail. And that's all I have for you right now. I was like, is she injured? What happened to her? Oh, no, she's fine. She was so drunk that nothing happened to her. She was so flimsy. So it goes by about another week or so. And... No, maybe two weeks. So it's about two weeks. This is just a couple of days ago. I get the police report. I go online. I find out this woman's name. Find out online she had like a .20 alcohol. She was going 65 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone. Uphill, one lane in each direction. And that's all I know. She hit four cars and a boat and left the scene. Turns out that the car she hit me with, was a Lexus, was not under her insurance. Like, oh, my God. So maybe she's driving someone else's car. So it takes two days to find out. No, she wasn't driving someone else's car. In fact, it was her car. However, it just wasn't listed on the insurance. And the woman at the insurance company, her insurance company, had to do some number crunching, data research, whatever. Found out it's under them. So I get a hold of their insurance company. This is all two and a half weeks later. The insurance guy comes out yesterday or Tuesday goes over the boat, takes photographs of everything. Um, basically I'm going to get 
$47 less than what I paid for the boat. So not a total loss, but remember I bought my boat at a huge discount. So right now I'm going after her for the boat, the damp. She destroyed the trailer. She destroyed the boat. She destroyed my big landing net. She destroyed, ripped out all the benches, you know, stuff I paid for extra. She broke seats and basically just, I can't make money right now because I don't have a boat. I have clients that I'm turning down because they want to go out for several hours on float trips and I can't do that. So I've not only have I had to go through all my receipts from the last four years and find out things I've purchased for the boat. I've also had to go through all my accounting and find out every dollar I've made from that boat in the past, let's see, 23 years. So since September of 2010. 2010, 2011, 2012, 24 years almost. So it's been a hassle on me. It's been sleepless nights. It's been a heartburn. I'm supposed to go up the Salmon River in about five weeks and do some drift trips with Joe of riverruntroutfitters.com. And here's a side tangent. If you see somebody snagging a fish this year on the Salmon River, photograph them. Don't have to have their face. Please don't have their face. But send it on Facebook to Joe at riverruntroutfitters.com or post it to the River Run Trout Fitters Facebook page. The person with the best capturing of a snagging fish will get a free drift boat trip on either the Salmon River of New York or the Delaware River of New York. We are calling out snaggers this year and we are posting their pics online. So that's about it for the boat right now. I've been in the talks with Stealthcraft Boats and Willie Boats, but it looks like the money I have now, which is not a whole lot, uh, I'm going to be able to get a, a Willie Boat from Oregon. The problem is shipping is $2,000. I can afford the boat. It's the shipping that's going to really kill me. But this is my job. I've chosen this over corporate life and federal jobs, which you don't even get paid for anymore. So, um, yeah, if you guys need Orvis rods and reels, Allen rods and reels, if you need Chacos, if you need any Ariat boots, if you need Costa Del Mar sunglasses, Leatherman tools, if you need flies, thingamabobbers, fly patches, if you need vest pack and vest pack materials, if you need phone cases, if you need Sitka gear, any purchase right now with Sitka gear gets free shipping. Sitka Gear is one of my all-time favorite outdoor clothing companies. If I could afford it, I would be wearing all Sitka Gear all the time. I love, love, love their digital Optifade camo. It is fantastic. In fact, I just ordered a new digital digital Optifade hat windproof that covers my forehead for the steelhead trip coming up. It goes with my digital Optifade net gator I wear in the winter. Just remember, if you buy through me on Pro Guide Direct, I get commission. It helps me pay the bills because, A, the wife is not working now, and I can't work on the Potomac. And this is such a sob story that uh, I don't have a boat. So, And it's going to take about four months for them to build a boat and get one shipped out here. So that's it for the rant about my boat. I've been gutting it, trying to see what I can salvage. I was hoping that they would let me keep the boat and I could sell it on Craigslist. You know, it still floats. You, if you put lawn chairs in it and an outboard, it'll still, I mean, it's not going to go in a circle, but it's not going to go straight and it's probably going to curve to the side. That's about it for the boat. So goodbye, Alumaweld 17 foot drift boat. You've been good for the last several years. I fished with you all over. I'm going to miss you. Now let's get to giving fish too much credit. Podcast 54. This is going to be more so with trout. I've already mentioned bonefish, but do we give fish too much credit? Now, the fishing industry loves to think that fish are very smart and that they have to come up with new products all the time to fool fish, which in some cases is true, but let's go over some of these things. Uh, I want to say that trout are like the ex-girlfriend you dated in college. Now, I'm pretty sure my ex-girlfriend in college is never going to listen to this. I haven't heard from her in 10 years, so there's probably no chance of her ever listening to this. But your ex-girlfriend is picky. She never knows what she wants to eat. Oftentimes, she's on a diet of some sort, and too much is just not what she can handle. They're very skittish, and if you 
make too much noise, they're going to run off and they're probably going to cry if something happens. They can't ever make up their mind. And there's probably more things that would be very insulting to my ex-girlfriend, but just think about that. Not one of my better analogies, but that's what I got to go with for now. So trout, they basically have a pea-sized brain. It's not that they're smart. We give them too much credit. Trout are scared of their own shadow. Trout have three things in mind, and most fish also. Eat, don't get eaten, make more trout. When they're out eating, they're vulnerable. They have to make sure that shadows passing by them, sounds, anything out of the ordinary is not a predator. Otters, birds, snakes, other fish, whatever else is out of the environment is always going to try and eat a trout. Now, the life of a bait fish is awful because they're always in fear. Trout, they get pretty big, so once they're big enough, you know, they're top dog in the pool. They don't really have to worry about getting eaten. No eagle is going to be coming down and taking out a huge trout. They might, but it's not worth their time. So let's talk about what a fish sees through the water. Let's talk about what a fish hears and feels. Let's talk about my thoughts on flies, hooks, strike indicators, lines, clothing, leaders and tippets, and split shot and whatever else ramblings may come throughout this. So basically, we want to take an approach when we're fly fishing, not to scare the fish, and... The fly fishing companies and guides like myself and, and anglers just out having fun are going to try and not spook the fish. So what a fish sees, hears, does, how does that impact you as an angler? So what does the fish see through the water? This whole podcast came to fruition when I took my daughter to the National Zoo, which is closed today, by the way. When you're at the tank that is below water, you look up. And you see the surface of the water, but you can't see anything past that. It's basically a mirror. You can see a couple of colors, colors, but you can't really see anything going on above that. Is that what a trout sees? I don't know. I'm not a trout. But for a pea-sized brain organism, and as they get larger, you know, their brains probably grow a little bit more. But these aren't intelligent creatures. You know, they don't have iPhones and iPads. They basically eat, sleep, poop underwater, and try not to get eaten and make more babies. What did they see? Can they see us coming? You know, I always say fish from downstream when you're walking at a river because fish can't see behind them. But how much can they see in front of you? Definitely when I'm fishing on creeks and you're walking along, fish are going to dart out. But how much can they see through that? Do they see a person? Is it a shape, a shadow? It's basically, I'm guessing, something just out of the ordinary. And that's all it takes is that one little thing in their pea-sized brain to click and say, not normal, run. Well, not run, swim away. When you're in water and you're fishing and it's turbid, they can't see you. Turbid water is always moving. They can't hear you either, which we'll talk about later. So when you're fishing very fast, turbid water, you don't really have to worry about your approach too much because they can't see you. When we're fishing four-mile run in Alexandria, Water's coming out of that sewage plant. It's tumbling over rocks and down a chute, and it's very turbid. They cannot see us. You can almost step on some eight-pound catfish in there because they don't see you because there's so much water flowing around. If you got your costas on, you can see through and you know where they are. What about in the shade? Well, remember, fish don't have eyelids. Fish can't control the amount of light that comes in out of their eyes. Granted, their pupils might dilate, but they can't shade themselves physically. They don't have eyelids, they don't have hats, they don't have sunglasses. They can't take their fin and shade themselves. So they're going to go into the shade. Does that allow them to see better because the sunlight's not directly in their eyes? I don't know, but you definitely want to fish a side of the river where your shadows aren't going to go across because they're going to see a shadow and definitely that's going to spook them. But you don't want to be on the side of the river where they can easily see you. If you're on the side that's got direct sunlight and your shadow's not on the water, they probably can't see you because they're temporarily blinded by that light. So just something to think about. I already mentioned your shadow going across the stream. When I was out on Mossy Creek a couple weeks ago, there was one couple that went up on the left bank. 
which at eight in the morning, the sun was right behind them and their shadow went over the water and across. That's something I'm not going to do. We went on the right hand. So our shadows were falling behind us. Very easy way to prevent spooking fish and the fish at Mossy Creek are, you don't really ever see them. We saw one fish really all day and we didn't catch anything but a chub. I mentioned the bonefish podcast that maybe your fishing reel might not want to be gold or titanium colored. You might, you want a, a black matte fish. Maybe, maybe the new grateful dead able reel. Does the reflection on a reel, a watch, a ring, Maybe you've got a golden tooth. Maybe you've got to reflect the sunglasses. Does the fish see that and scare them? Do we think it is? We probably give them more credit that the stuff we're wearing is going to spook them. You know, I do remember being in the Florida Keys in 91 and a guy lost a finger because a barracuda saw his ring. So fish are used to seeing things that reflect light. Fish scales reflect light and that attracts other fish. That's why MacGyver taught a girl how to fish with a gum wrapper and a hook, and she started catching fish out of the harbor. They like reflective stuff, but is too much reflective in the wrong place going to scare them? Probably not, but if you want to just take that extra bit of caution to avoid spooking your fish, you might want to do that. I also mentioned in the Bonefish podcast that we were out at near John Pennekamp State Park, and a bird flew over, and the bonefish spooked when they saw the shadow. Animals don't like overhead things. It's going to be birds. Things are going to be attacking them. So basically, don't let the fish see you from above. If you're on a hill, creep over and look down onto them. Don't show your whole body. Be sneaky. Be stealthy. It's sort of like you're, you're definitely hunting when you're an angler. If you haven't picked this up, this is sort of just a rant podcast. Now, the color of your clothes. Are you going to be wearing stuff that blends into the woods? You need to be wearing stuff that blends into the skies. Or you can be wearing camouflage that blends in and makes you look like water. There's all sorts of different marketing out there for camouflage clothing and sky colored stuff. Basically, just wear light colored stuff that doesn't make you stand out. If you're wearing a bright colored outfit against a dark background, fish is probably going to see that and sense that something's off. But if you wear a dark color and blend in, I'm not saying you've got to be wearing exactly Sitka digital optifade when you're in the Eastern. And if you're fishing in the West, you wear the brownish optifade, but you don't have to blend it hundred percent. You don't have to be a chameleon, but you know, is matching your clothes. That's probably a good idea. Plus if you're out in a bright situation, lighter clothes reflect light. So you're not going to be as hot. now what does the fish hear and see? We know that fish have a cone of vision in front of them that shows where they see. It's their peripheral vision, which gets kind of bigger as the cone goes out. So they can't see to their sides. They can't see behind them. Their lateral line, their acousticolateralis, is what you see prominently on a snook. Uh, Largemouth bass, some bluegills have them. It's the line of pitch that goes down the side of the fish. And vibrations go through these pits and eventually end up at the central nervous system and send a message to the brain that they're hearing things. So people worry about cleats on rocks. Does the sound of your cleats scare fish? Well, if you're in a fast moving water, have you ever stuck your head underwater in a stream? It's pretty darn loud under there. I'm not really sure that a fish 30 to 40 feet away from you is ever going to hear your cleats scraping against rocks. Just my opinion. It's loud down there. But then again, sound does travel, eh, what, 10 times faster in water than it does in air. But if the water's moving, it's taking the sound downstream and away from the fish. So when you're waiting, definitely try not to make too much noise. When we're waiting flat areas, bonefish, tidal flats, you don't want to have a wake when you're walking because you're going to be pushing water. That's going to cause an unnatural disturbance in the water. That's going to scare the fish where you're going. You don't want to jump into a hole and start fishing it because jumping in loud splash ripples, waves, it's going to scare the fish. So you got to be stealthy. We give fish a little too much credit. Sometimes when you're trying to be super sneaky, quiet and you're whispering on the stream, think about the bass fishermen, Saturday morning bass shows. These guys, you know, in a tournament, you got 70 to 80 boats all at once firing up 200 horsepower outboards and they're taking off and then they stop their engine and they start fishing and they start catching fish. 
So who knows really what they hear and what disturbs them, but you want to be cautious just in case. Now, my boss in Florida, he would bring that glass coffee pot on the boat, and it would clank around and stuff, and I blame a lot of his sound for me not catching a bonefish because bonefish are skittish. But if you're fishing for largemouth, which to me, a largemouth bass is it's a drunken frat guy. They're big, they're dumb, and they're hungry. They just want to eat. Bass aren't scared of a whole lot. I mean, they'll come right up to us when we're fishing. They hide under things because frat guys are out late at night and their eyes always hurt because they're hungover. Bass are the same way. They're just big and hungry. Me want food, chips, pizza, buffalo wings, mm, nom nom. That's what they want. They want to eat. Bigger fish have bigger appetites. And if you ever hear that Kelly Gallup talk, big fish aren't scared of you. At some point, they're going to be big enough and mean enough that they're the baddest dude around. And and they will just kind of move out of the way and continue feeding. So what if fish hears and feels, yeah, do you want to make sure your line doesn't smack down? We'll talk about that later. But definitely don't be dropping your beer cans in the boat. Don't be skipping rocks. My daughter likes to throw rocks when we're fishing. I'm like... Pixie, do not be doing that. You're going to scare the fish, and she just doesn't get it yet. But she will when she's older. Let's talk about flies. I got a big bunch of opinions about flies. This goes on a rant. When I flip through my catalogs, I get the Orvis catalog. I get the L.L. Bean catalog. I get Cabela's. I get Bass Pro Shops. I get... What else do I get? I get uh, Fly Shack catalog, and I get... Who else do I get? The fly shop catalog. And then when I, you know, I go to shows, I'll pick up Umqua and Rainey's. I'll pick up Montana Fly. You start looking at these flies and you wonder, of course, it's tied for the fishermen, but do we give the fish too much credit in what we try to be sneaky with? What they look like to us may not be what they look like to the fish. We already know that they sell fly tying lights for your house to mimic what the fly, the light is like outside. When tied materials are splayed out, so people are tying these nice, big, beautiful spade patterns with ostrich, you know, feathers coming out. One ostrich plume wet is about the size of a pin. It's pretty darn tiny. You got to put a whole bunch of them together to actually make bulk. So it looks beautiful on Instagram. But just you know, five of these little feathers sticking out when they're wet, they're nothing. They're about as big as a piece of 20-pound monofilament. Colors. Colors disappear as you go deeper in the water as you lose reflective light. Remember, what we see is uh, – what's the term? You know, the light – it's uh, not the reflection. I'm having one of those brain gaseous episodes here. It's the reflective light that comes off it. So sunshine lands on something and reflects off. It's the wavelength. There we go. Ding, ding. The wavelength. We know that colors disappear as the frequency of wavelength disappear. Red disappears usually the first. So when you're tying something that's supposed to have a bleeding gill on it and it's 10 feet down, that bleeding gill is blue or black or gray. Fish do not see red that deep. You see these beautiful pictures of coral reefs? Well, most of the time that's with a flash camera. That is not the color they are normally. That's the color they appear under a flash light bulb. But then again, there's UV light. If you Google what a bumblebee sees versus what we see, most of those insect-pollinated flowers have guides on them that light up in UV light that basically guide them towards the nectar and the nectar pollen reward, etc. I'm not completely sold on UV fly tying materials because when you shine a UV light on them, that's pretty cool, but they're not always going to look like that. You're not going to have 100% UV light shining on them. You have cloudy days, rainy days, snowy days. You might have higher altitude where there's fewer air particles, so the light is stronger. You might be at the beach and there's thicker humidity, which will block some of the light from entering. There's all sorts of different scenarios and variations and variables with light that I don't really think that UV materials are 100% sold. Now, I'm not going to say don't go out and buy them. We've got Uncle Keith in our fishing club who swears by UV material, but for myself, I don't know. I think we give them too much credit that's saying, hey, this is UV. The fish is going to pick it out that much faster and eat it. 
Now, when a fish sees a fly, you know, a dry fly just floating down the surface, it's static. It's not really moving. So hackle gives it the impersonation of legs flittering and fluttering around. But when you're stripping a fly through, it's not static. It's moving. I would never fish a streamer like a Mickey Finn or a Grey Ghost because it doesn't move. It's that same. It looks the same in the fly bin, in the fly box, as it does in the water. I want things that are going to undulate and and make sound and, and dart left and right. I can't fish a fly that just a streamer specifically that just sits there and does nothing. Think about a train when it goes by. Do you see the individual people as they go by or are they a blur? How much does that fish see? Does your fly really need to have specific lateral lines on it and tessellation or little splotches on it? Does it need to have a piece of grizzly hackle going down the side? Do you really need to have a jungle cock eye on a fly that's moving super fast. They're probably not going to see that. The last time a bus drove by, were you actually able to read and make out the whatever TV show they're advertising for some judge during the midday? Probably not. You just saw a blur go by. So does the pattern of the fly matter when the fly is in motion, fast or slow? I don't know. But I don't spend too much time on my streamers giving them all sorts of extra bling because, frankly, I think we give them too much credit. Go to the fly shop. Dig through those bins. Remember, new flies come out every year because people think that fish get used to seeing them. Is that true? I don't know. They got pea-sized brains. Remember, every time a goldfish wakes up in the morning, it finds a plastic castle and a little treasure chest. And it's like, look at this treasure chest. Oh, my gosh. Think about squirrels, too. They're memories. We wouldn't have forests if squirrels could remember where to plant their nuts and in the ground to hide them and then come back and find them. Squirrel brains aren't that much bigger than a trout's brain. Now, granted, squirrels can, of course, uh, figure out how to get bird feed out of your feeder, even if it's squirrel-proof, but they still plant their squirrels because they have short memories. Trout have short memories, too. You spook them, give them 10 minutes later, they're going to be feeding again. What does a fish see from below? My mouse patterns don't have eyes, whiskers, and cute little noses on them. My poppers don't have anything on top. It doesn't matter what the top of your dry fly looks like because the fish is never going to see it. When an airplane goes over, what does the top of the airplane look like? I don't know. I'm only seeing the bottom. I don't know what the tops of most birds look like because they fly over me all the time. You don't need all that extra bling on flies when the fish doesn't see it. It's just going to add extra weight to it. Again, it's there to make the fly look appealing to you so you buy it and spend the money in the fly shop. Dumbbell eyes, another thing. Do you need pupils on them? There are so many different varieties of very high-tech fish-eyed eyeballs on the market right now. I just use the cheap dumbbell eyes with no eyes on them, and we catch a lot of fish. They're also expensive, man. I'm not going to be spending $10 on a pack of eight eyes, and we're going to probably lose seven of those flies in one outing. That gets expensive. It's good for the fly shop, not good for the angler. I honestly don't think a fish can tell a detailed eye from an undetailed eye. Now you look at a lot of fish in the ocean. They've got a spot on their back, which you know, on their tail, which gives a predator the sense that that's where the head is. And that's where to attack the fish. Okay. So fish have evolved to see the fish's eye and know it is the place to attack and kill it. Well, a plain eyeball is an eyeball to me. It's just a black circle. I don't know. Fish don't count. So do you really need to have segmentation in your stoneflies? Do you really have to have four parts on the carapace on the back of the thorax of a stonefly? Do you really need to have two caudal cerci on a mayfly? When I tie my trico spinners, I use like six paintbrush bristles because fish can't see if there's only two. And frankly, five is more than two. That's more buoyancy. That's going to keep your fly higher in the water. Fish don't count the articulations in a leg. Granted, a grasshopper has a femur, it has a tibia, it has an ankle, it has feet, and has tarsal hooks on the toes. Their bones, our bone structure is very analogous to a grasshopper's. Chernobyl ant doesn't have articulated legs. It catches just as many fish as something that's got all sorts of articulations. Sure, it's fun to throw something that looks match the hatch and looks exactly like it, but you don't really need that. You don't need eyeballs on a cricket or grasshopper. Fish don't care. They want that splat and that little twitch, and then they're going to eat. It's instinct. 
that they're biting your fly. It's not there's like, hmm, that looks like a so-and-so species which has a, a yellow articulation with a, a red abdomen and orange spiracles. That's exactly what I wanted to eat today. No, fish isn't doing that. Splat, twitch. Mm-hmm. I think too much bling on flies drives the price up. Do we really need like 8 and $9 poppers out there? Yeah, when I worked in the Keys, we sold Clousers for $7, but that's because our clientele were billionaires. It was chump change to them. But to the average angler who doesn't tie their own flies, don't put all that extra stuff in there to make them fancy looking. They don't have to look like cartoon characters. A woolly bugger catches so many fish. You don't have to dress it up with all this fancy stuff all the time to make it look like the hottest new thing of the year. We're not talking fashion. You know, these aren't Prada or what well, I don't know, fashion, whatever. I just saw that movie with uh, the Devil Wears Prada. So I learned some fashion from there. And she's like, oh, but look at my blue sweater. That's the sweater that we spent 10 years designing. You don't have to put all that stuff in there. Fish are going to eat regardless if it is super articulated, super. And that's the other thing. People are tying all these like five, art- you know, granted, Blaine Chocolate's Game Changer. That should be articulated. But people are tying up these huge articulated trout flies and posting them on the internet and everything. Well, you know what? I'm not spending 20 minutes tying a fly. And how often do you ever see that fly in a big fish's mouth? It's fun to tie them, but it's not necessary. You can go out with just an all-white deceiver and spend five minutes tying that at the most and catch a huge trout. But no one fishes deceivers for trout. Why? Well, they want to fish super articulated Things that have spun deer hair and beads built into them and dumbbell eyes and a little bit of marabou pommered and all this just extra stuff, man. That's like going to a fancy restaurant and asking for a coulis of this with minced that and a schmear of this. You can just put a cheeseburger in front of me and I'm going to eat it. I don't need all that stuff that you would find at a three-star restaurant. Just don't need it. Also, when was the last time you compared a sycamore seed, Google it, to a sable wolf or an Adams? They look 100% identical. Our flies sometimes look a lot like what's in nature. And speaking of flies, I want to talk about this as well before I forget, because I don't write everything down when I do podcasting. This one's more of the top of my head. The majority of what a trout eats underwater is three quarters of an inch long olive brown in color that's it that's why the adams is such a great dry fly what they eat on top most of the time is three quarters of an inch long and olive or brown color caddis flies stone flies mayflies granted you're gonna have yellow sallies you're gonna have white millers exceptions to the rule but the majority of the stuff a pheasant tail nymph and a parachute adams will cover 90 percent of the trout insects underwater a stimulator Orange stimulator, yellow stimulator. That covers caddisflies, mayflies, stoneflies, grasshoppers. There are specific patterns out there for specific organisms, but the majority of what a fish eats, three quarters of an inch long, olive brown color. That should simplify everything out there. But we have so many different flies out there for people to purchase because the majority of a fly shop sales are in flies. Then again, sycamore seeds look exactly like an atom. So fish has to eat lots of things before it finds out if it's food or not. It's got to learn the hard way. So it's going to be eating sticks, twigs. If you ever do a post-mortem on a fish and look at the guts, there's going to be a lot of inedible objects in there. I think it was Captain Brady Bounds of the Chesapeake Bay who will catch a fish on his business card tied to a hook. When fish are blitzing, they're not looking for specific things. We had one guy used to come into our, our shop, uh, Matt Handy. He used to write for Trout Unlimited magazine. He would just go down to the fish albacore with a three-inch piece of a white shoelace tied to a hook. And you know what? Albacore in a feeding frenzy, they're not looking to see if it's a silver side, if it's a mama chog, if it's a bay anchovy. They're not looking to see if it's a killifish. If it's the certain three-inch long moving thing in the water, they're going to eat it during a blitz. Eh, there's tons of albacore flies out there and tuna flies and bluefish flies and striper flies, but the majority of what they eat is about three to four inches long and silvery to white. 
Let's talk about hooks. How much of what a fish sees on the fly is the hook, and does that scare them away? You look at a nymph, and three-quarters of that is the fly, and a quarter of it is the bend and a point. That doesn't scare them away, but we still give them too much credit. The bend and the gap, especially if you look at Czech-style jigs that have a huge bend in the gap, that is going to be three-quarters of the fly itself. So I'm sorry, three-quarters of the hook is going to be like the gap and the bend, and a quarter of the hook is the fly. So the majority of what we think we're feeding them is only a quarter of it. Three-quarters of what we're feeding them is junk, but they still bite it. We're tying flies with a hook bend sticking out that's shiny in most cases. They seem to ignore it. Why? Because fish are stupid. The color of the hook doesn't make a difference. Yeah, some people say shiny gold hooks for shad. Ooh, red hooks for steelhead. Bronze hooks if you want to be sneaky. Yeah, I like the uh, the Fly Shack black hooks made by a Sabre Hook Company that Fly Shack exclusively sells. The barbless ones are black. Yeah, it's nice. It blends in a little bit better. But when you're looking at a fly and there's a huge... What does a fish think that huge bend is underneath them? Does it think it's like their gut's hanging out? Is it an extra leg? I don't know. But fish don't seem to care because fish are stupid. Now, strike indicators. People are like, oh, I only fish white strike indicators because it blends in with the sky. Well, you know what? There's lots of crap that floats down a river. If you throw a brown or green or orange strike indicator, fish probably thinks that it's something organic floating down. A leaf, a twig, a branch, a sweet gum ball, a sycamore seed, an acorn. There's a lot of junk that floats down there. Granted, fish come up and eat them. Why? Well, I already told you, fish have to find out what is and what is not edible. So they're going to come up more than often and bite your strike indicator, mostly out of curiosity. Kind of like a great white shark will take a bite out of a surfboard. It wants to bite it and find out if it's edible. I like the bright pink and peach colored thingamabobbers because I can see them in any light condition. Some people will fish only black ones. I don't know. People are more picky than the fish they're going after. More often than not, what you're throwing looks like flotsam, and they're going to come up and eat it unless, I don't know. That's my theory on strike indicators. Now, I'll be starting to throw the uh, float masters when I go steelhead fishing soon because we got the float master owner on a podcast back in January, and I know that they don't sink, and they're very good at right-angle leaders. I'm going to be using those. And I frankly don't think that any steelhead is looking up and saying, there's another strike indicator going over me. I just I just can't go after any food for 30 seconds until that thing passes because I just associate that with with the, uh, the, the last time I got hooked. No, they don't. They forgot 10 minutes ago. Line. Now you hear about this specifically in New Zealand. Line color does it have to be, I like bright orange and bright green. Why? Because my clients and I can see it. People that go to New Zealand say it has to be sky blue or light gray. I've never been to New Zealand. I know the water is crystal clear there. The fish can see everything. You get one or two fish per hole. They probably know what's going on a little bit more. Camouflage lines are coming out now that change colors throughout to, you know, sinking lines are always buckskin or peach colored for intermediate and clear now. But back in the day, you usually had them just a dark colored. Well, a fish is still going to see a black line shooting through the water. They see a lot of stuff going through the water. They probably don't even notice your fly line. But bright colors, easier for us to see. And if you're worried about the color of your line going back and forth over them, do less false casts. What about your line splashing? Yeah, you want to have a delicate presentation because 80 feet or 30 feet of PVC plastic landing on the water is going to make a very abnormal disturbance in the water that's going to make them go back under their hiding spots. And most trout have a specific place they go to when they are spooked. They figured that out long before you showed up, and when you spook them, it's not the first time that they're going there. That is their safe place. Line shadow. Yeah, you don't want any kind of shadow going across the water, left and right, left and right. If you were going to feed me and there was something, you know, flying, coming over my head, like a a house fly in the kitchen, I'd be pissed and I wouldn't want to eat until that thing was gone. Same with fish. Limit your false casts. Well, A, one, you're going to tangle your line. B, you're going to get exhausted. Three, you're going to eventually break your rod if you cast too much. And uh, what are we, four, A, B, C, D, E, uh, They don't want to see something going over their head while they're trying to eat. It's just confusing and spooky to them. 
Now, we talked about clothing, camo for land, camo for water, wearing bright orange. Now, I was out with somebody once with a guide, and a guy shows up, a client with a bright orange hat, and the guy tells him to take that, that effing orange hat off. Yeah, I really don't think an orange hat in October is really going to scare fish. Frankly, I wear a mango-colored wading coat with reflectors on it, and I still catch fish. I've got plenty of olive drab wading coats, but you know what? My coats are made for kayakers. They got the rubber gasket on the wrist and the rubber gasket on the neck, latex, to keep water out. Fly fishing jackets don't do that. Fly fishing jackets are always olive drab colored. Until they make a fly fishing jacket that has latex gaskets, I'm not buying a fly fishing jacket. I'm going to continue with the kayaking ones. I wear Kokatat and Patagonia. Neither of which are on Pro Guide Direct yet, but I don't think Patagonia will ever be there. Kokatat should be on there. All right, last but oh, not last. Okay, Monover's Floro. I got an email, Tom Rosenbauer, about his podcast. You know, Tom always says we never sell lead since 81, but they'll sell fluorocarbon, which never biodegrades. Okay, well, that's just a side note that fluorocarbon never degrades, but we still buy it. Do we really need to use fluorocarbon? When I'm fishing for largemouth bass, sunfish, stripers, shad, these fish do not need fluorocarbon. I'll fish for fluorocarbon when I'm in very skinny water for trout, steelhead fishing, tailwaters where the water's clear. But honestly, I can't see monofilament in the water. I don't think the fish can either. And as you get bigger in size, can they really tell the difference between one one thousandth of a millimeter? Probably not. The only time I'm going to use very small 5X is when I can't get my monofilament through the eye of the hook. If I can fit eight pound Berkeley Vanish in the eye, I'm going to use eight pound Berkeley Vanish. That's almost what I strictly use everywhere I go fishing. I use it for dry flies and midges in Colorado. I use it for shad flies on the Potomac. I use it for bass flies on inland lakes and rivers. Fluorocarbon is more expensive because the process it makes it requires, but you know what? If you're fishing muddy, turbid water, yeah, fluorocarbon is just a waste of your money. Granted, you might want to have a monofilament leader and then your tippet just fluorocarbon. That's great. That'll save you money. But honestly, you really don't need to have fluorocarbon in every situation. Just carry a couple spools of it or be like me and just make your leaders out of inexpensive materials. Now, leader length. I'm never going to fish a 14-foot leader. I'm never going to fish a 21-foot leader. I don't know any situation where I ever have to do that. If it comes up and that's the way to go and I learn something from it, yeah, but you know what? A 9-foot leader or the leader matches the length of your rod, it's a pretty good way to do it. Bay guys, they do a length and a half of their rod. That's more for balancing out Skagit and Scandi lines. But for us, though, a 9-foot, 5 weights, 9-foot leader is all you need. Also, when I tie my leaders, I don't cut my tag ends. The reason is it just creates more litter. I'm going to lose those in my pockets. And people are like, oh, you're going to you're gonna leave those tag ends on there? I'm like, well, yeah, dude, we're fishing for bass. Bass, don't give them any credit for being smart. They're drunk frat guys. Me want food. They're not going to care if the pizza box is dented when you give it to them, honestly. They're going to eat whatever you put in front of them. Knots, well... You know, I don't want to talk about knots. That's nothing. But yeah, I already talked about thickness. I once sat out and had a cigar and a couple drinks with Dave who ran Spruce Creek Fly Shop. And we had a whole discussion about three, four, five, six X tippet. And he's like, yeah, that it's completely BS when you're, unless you're fishing for fishing with a hook of a specific eye size that you need to match. You can fish large tippet for most fish because they can't tell the diameter of 4X from 5X and 4X from 6X. It's really not that big of a difference. Okay, knots. I like the blood knot. It's where I connect my um, my leaders together. And I use the improved clinch knot. But if I'm throwing my bacon fly, if you've gone to YouTube and seen my streamer, I specifically tell you to tie a triple surgeon's loop. Well, I usually have that loop about four or five inches long, and then I put the split shot above the knot. I don't tie the, what is that little itty mono loop that's like, keeps the knot like three inch, three centimeters from your fly. I catch some big fish. I catch a lot of fish. My clients catch a lot of fish. That big loop doesn't seem to scare the fish. In fact, if you go back to 2011, 
There's a picture on my drift boat. Oh, Dios mío. On my drift boat. There's a picture of a client who was casting and a bluegill went to eat the popper and it got stuck in that loop. That's how big the loop was. A five-inch bluegill got stuck in it. It didn't scare him off from eating it. He still went for it. All right, let's finish this up. We're about 50-minute mark. Split shot. People are concerned with two things about split shot. One, the sound of it bouncing along rocks. Well, you know what? There's a term called erosion, and erosion is weathering of igneous metamorphic sedimentary materials, and they eventually go into water, and they move downstream. You wouldn't have uh, rocks organized the way they are in the water if it wasn't for them moving along the bottom. There are always rocks moving along the bottom, being displaced by the currents. There's always other debris bouncing along the bottom. The sound of your split shot bouncing along the bottom will not scare the fish. Second, you do not need to paint your split shot. If you go to salmoncrazy.com, which is a forum that I frankly think has gone way downhill since its inception, every year you got somebody that's like, I'll get my split shot and I'll paint them so the fish don't see the reflective lead. The lead is a pretty dull drab, non-reflective color. Fish don't really see that, especially if your split shot is two feet away from your fly. They're not associating your split shot with that fly. It could be a piece of quartz bouncing downstream that reflects So that's my rant about my drift boat and giving fish too much credit. I think we give fish way too much credit that all they want to do is eat, not get eaten, and make new fish. We throw flies that have way too much stuff on them to fool them when basically they eat things that are basically the same looking every day of their life. Don't make too much noise because fish can hear you unless the water is very loud and fast. Don't pee in the water because Ralph did that, my old boss. I think that smell of his stinky pee probably scared all the bonefish away. And just be stealthy. Don't worry about your cleats. Don't worry about uh, your gold tooth reflecting too much light. You're going to do okay, guys and ladies. You're going to be fine fly fishing out there. Don't give the fish too much credit. Just have fun with it. And let's hope my waterways down here open up soon because I need to go fly fishing along the Potomac River because on Sunday night, I got a fish that broke me off 12-pound tippet, and I want to know what that fish was, and I can't get there now. So, Jason, hopefully I didn't bore you as well as the rest of the other people with this podcast, but it's just something I've been meaning to say. Not sure what the next podcast is going to be. We're trying to get some more interviews lined up, but that is it for Series 1, Episode 55. Jason, take it away. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.